evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we are continuing our broadcast with another fabulous teaching from Greg Kokel entitled, Truth is Not Ice Cream. Interesting title, but don't miss this one. It provides you with a great view of our culture and how we relate. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's guest speaker Greg Kokel with part two of a message entitled, Truth is Not Ice Cream. Practice of religion becomes like a pill. What do they call those? A placebo, okay? So it's a placebo. For many Christians in our country, people are sitting in churches all the time, and I'm not saying they're not genuine or they don't love the Lord, or I'm not even saying they're saved. I'm just talking about their attitude. Their perspective is that they are using God to soothe something subjectively in their lives. The issue of the truth of their convictions is not even on the table, which is why they can't answer when someone says, why do you believe this is true? How did you come to that conclusion? Our second Columbo question, they can't answer that. Now, I think the Holy Spirit sovereignly brings a lot of people into the kingdom without them having other reasons for it. I think that's legitimate. But do you see the liability that it places those people at? The liability is they are grounded now in subjective things, not objective things. And that's the kind of stuff that resonates with them, okay? Guess what other religious group is grounded in subjective things and not objective things? The Church of Jesus Christ for Latter of Latter-day Saints. How do they know their religion is true? Because they have an experience. So experiences can mislead because Mormon th doctrine has no comparison to Classical Christian doctrine, they have the same language. Every definition is different. There is no crossover between a single piece of Mormon doctrine and classical Christian doctrine. That's why they're a separate religion. Now, I'm not putting them down. I'm just making an observation. If all you're left with is your subjective placebo, then when times get tough, you don't know whether your convictions are sound or not. And times do get tough. If all you're left with is a placebo, what happens when somebody with a, maybe a more powerful feeling placebo comes along? And usually, by the way, for young people, it is not the LDS missionary. It's some good-looking girl or good-looking guy on the campus of the University of Hawaii. That's the alternative subjective rush that is being offered, and so our people fall like dominoes. Why? Because they have got, they've accepted a cultural pattern that views morality and religious convictions as mere ice cream type preferences. All right? I was on a radio show in the ABC affiliate in Los Angeles many years ago. They have a rabbi, a Roman Catholic priest, Protestant, and a talk show host who is Jewish. This was back in the 80s. The talk show host was Dennis Prager. Some of you know him because he's got a fairly well-known radio show now. He's conservative Jewish intellectual, a very observant Jew, but very friendly to evangelicals. On this particular day, though, 
Dennis wasn't there, someone else was sitting in for him, and a caller called in to ask the panel, how do you choose a religion? And the rabbi said, choose a religion that you like. That's what the rabbi said. Now, when he said that, is he talking about religion being ice cream or insulin? Ice cream. The Roman Catholic priest, he came next, and what he said is you find something that resonates with you. Maybe a little bit better, but I think that's more what? Ice cream or insulin? Ice cream. Now it's my turn. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter if you like your religion or not. That's not the right question to ask. What you want to do is you want to find the religion that's true. And of course, this wasn't the way people in a panel like that address that kind of question. I was the odd person out because I was acting like religion was a body of knowledge, kind of like science was. You find out the truth about religion in a different way than you do about science, but I'm treating it as the same kind of thing. And this situation of, of uh, the lack of confidence in truth is getting worse as time goes on. I actually did a debate in Southern California. It was Chapman University. The, my debate opponent was Dr. Marvin Meyer. Dr. Meyer is very well known in uh, biblical academic circles. He's an expert in the Gnostic Gospels. My copy of the Gospel of Thomas is actually translated by Dr. Meyer, the guy that I was debating against. He has a PhD. He's been on TV many times on History Channel and the like. He's gone now. He passed away a few years ago. But I'm debating him on the issue of truth. And the title of the debate was, Is Truth True? So now we're not just talking about religious truth. We're talking about whether there's anything that's true anymore. And this is kind of a, what's called a postmodern impulse or the postmodern turn, where it's not just thinking that religion and morality is ice cream. Now everything's ice cream, you know. And that was the nature of the debate. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm against a professor, and the topic is the existence of truth. And the professor is debating against me, and the claim that he is making is that there is no truth. Do you see a, immediately see a difficulty with his side and an advantage for my side? I mean, strategically. Yeah, because he's arguing that it is true that there is no truth. And I thought, well, that's too easy. I, I don't want to get blindsided by anything, so I called one of my mentors, J.P. Moreland, a philosopher, has had a tremendous influence on my life. I said, Jay, I'm doing this debate against Marv Meyer. Marv Meyer is also a member of the Jesus Seminar. You might know who that is. Anyway, um, but it's uh, Is Truth True is the title of the debate, and I laid it out for him. I said, I, I, it seems to me I, this is going to be easy to win because I could just say, is that when they say there is no truth, I could just say, is, is that true? <laughs> and that's the end of it. But that sounds too easy. I don't want to get blindsided because, you know, I'm just working on my master's in philosophy under J.P. Moreland. This guy's got a Ph.D., He's credits and a CV as long as my arm. I mean, wow. And JP tells me, no, it's that easy. It's a self-refuting notion. So I said, okay, prepare my presentation. I, that was my whole strategy. And as I opened the presentation, I made the point. Look at debates are certain types of things. Debates are the kinds of events where two people get together and argue. And they argue that the other person's point of view is false and their own point of view is true. So even if Dr. Meyer shows up at the debate, he doesn't even say anything. Just coming to the debate 
I win because of the nature of debates. Well, they didn't get that. And I tried to think like, and I said, okay, well, you know, if he says there is no truth, is that true? And then some people chuckled, but a lot of times when you use that way of talking about that problem, it's so obvious people miss it. They think it's a word trick or something. You're playing a game with them. What are you missing? So I used an illustration. Now, I, I've been living for many years in Southern California. I usually live on the western end. And the prevailing winds are from west to east, and so all that smog that's produced on the coast gets blown into the Inland Empire, like Riverside. But one summer, I was in Riverside as a carpenter, and I was working there, and I was breathing all of that stuff. And me and my buddy, we were coughing and sputtering, and I was telling this to the audience. We were coughing and sputtering, and our eyes were watering, and finally my buddy said, man, I can't take it anymore. This smog is killing me. I'm going to go out back and have a smoke. You see, he didn't see the obvious contradiction, obviously, in what he said. Ah, free breathing restored, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the way I did the whole debate. Now, at one point, I had to define the word truth in the debate. And here's how I defined truth. And just to give you a hint, the notion of truth is common sense. There is a garden variety definition that we are all using almost every time we refer to the word truth. And that's all I'm tra trading on. I'm simply trading on something they already know. So here's how I made my point. I said, I said, well, I needed to find truth and tell you what we mean by truth. And this was a, a, a venue about this size. It was in a, a, a student union, and it was standing room only. And there was a guy that was standing over by the pillar over there uh, in blue jeans. And when I started talking about defining truth, I looked over at him and I said, hey, your zipper's open. Now, what do you think everybody did? <laughs> what do you think he did? Now, it turns out that his zipper wasn't down, it was up, which I pointed out. Therefore, my statement that his zipper was down was not a true statement, but a false statement. There's no mystery here, okay? Truth is when you make a claim, and your claim is what you claim it to be. Here's the way Aristotle put it. If you say that it is, and it is, or you say that it isn't, and it isn't, that's truth. Now, if you say that it is, and it isn't, or if you say that it isn't, and it is, that's false. Aristotle got credit for that. You think, I could have done that, man. Yeah, because this is the garden variety definition of what truth means. And that's why I say subjective truth is a distortion of the standard meaning of truth. There is no truth for me in a, in a very profound sense. When people say, well, that's true for me, all they're saying is that they believe it, right? Well, we know they believe it. That's why they're saying it. But our, concern, our question is not whether or not they believe it but whether or not what they believe is actually true. Can believing something make it true? Let me say that again. It's not a trick question. Can believing something make it true? No, if believing something could make it true, there'd be no difference between believe and make believe. Believing can't make it true, so identifying one's belief as his truth is talking nonsense. That's why people say that, well, it's his truth or it's my truth. I say, what do you mean by that? Oh, where'd that question come from? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, I believe it. Oh, okay, good. So you believe it. You use the word truth. Yeah, it's my truth. 
Can believing something make it true? No. Well, then belief isn't the truth, is it? Oh, see what you're saying. See, what, what you have to do sometimes is educate people on this. If believing something can't make it true, if you're believing something is false, false, it can't be your truth or his truth or their truth or any kind of truth at all because it's not even true. It's false. I have a little section on that in the story of reality in case you missed that. So when the debate was over, and this was the same theme that I pursued the entire time, you know, that Dr. Meyer is saying that Aristotle is wrong and Derrida is right, another philosopher, a modern philosopher, postmodern philosopher. He's saying that Kokel is wrong and Meyer is right, that one set of beliefs is false and another set of beliefs is true. And the beliefs that are true is the belief that there is no truth. I just pointed out the contradiction the entire time. We got to the end of the debate, they took a vote. Whether they were ready to take a vote, I had the last word. We had Q&A and then I can make my final statement. So I said to the audience, you're about to take a vote and some of you are going to vote for Dr. Meyer and some of you are going to vote for me and if you vote for Dr. Meyer, that's fine with me. I think he did a really good job. But I just want you to be aware of what you will be saying when you mark your ballot for Dr. Meyer. You will be saying that Dr. Meyer convinced you that Mr. Kokel's view was false and Dr. Meyer's view was true and therefore every vote for Dr. Meyer will be a vote in favor of the resolve which I was defending. Thank you very much, I said, and they all started laughing because they got it. A vote for Dr. Meyer is really a vote for me. So in the final tally, Dr. Meyer got one vote. Somebody wasn't listening. <laughs> there are two other people who wrote a bunch of like postmodern gobbledygook around the side. They didn't want to strike a box because they didn't want to fall in the trap. But it wasn't my clever trap. It's the nature of the thing itself. We are truth seekers by nature. If we couldn't know some things that were true, we'd be dead in a day because our survival depends on our ability to assess things in our world and draw accurate conclusions about what is so and what is not so. Now we have, we do this a lot in the physical realm. How do you get to this church? I got my thing out and there was a map my GPS, it made a claim about the location of this church and the layout of this part of the town. And what I did is I trusted the map was accurate and I followed that map and I got to my destination. I drive and I arrive. Now I've just make a transition here. I want to talk about briefly before we close this session. The transition I'm making now is the transition from reasonable understanding, that knowledge, to acting on that reasonable understanding. Notice what I said. I got out my GPS, I looked at the map, and I trusted that it would get me to my destination, and I followed it. I had reason to, I'm just doing the thing again because this is so important, it's easy to miss. I had reason to believe that the map was accurate and so I, what was the word I used? I trusted it. Now, what was the evidence of my trusting the map? Somebody help me out. What was the evidence that I was trusting what the map said? I drove here. 
I turned on the car, got on the street, got confused with the one-way streets and the no left turns, went around the block a bunch of times, still looking at the map I was trusting, and lo and behold, at 8.01, I pulled into the parking lot. I drive and I arrive. Why? Because the map was true, as far as it went. But the true map did me no good unless I acted in trust. So now I want to say something about faith. The first thing I'm saying is, now conceptually, because I'm not defending this robustly, other sessions were doing that, but as Christians we're talking about reality. We are not talking about our fantasies. Now it may turn out that these are our fantasies. That depends on the evidence. I'm just saying for the sake of discussion. But make no mistake about the kind of claim we're making. We are not talking about our fantasy life. We are describing the world the way it really is. So that we say that we talk about God or pray to God, we are convinced he's really there and listening. When we talk about Jesus, we are talking about a real individual who lived in history, who did very particular things that transformed the world as a result of the impact that he made. So much so that if you had been there 2,000 years ago and you leaned against a particular cross on a rock, a rock outcropping outside of ancient Jerusalem, you would have gotten a splinter in your hand. It was that real. And the blood flowing from that victim that was nailed to that cross would have had a blood type. That's the kind of reality we're talking about. We're talking about the real world. We're not talking about a religious fantasy. There are a lot of religious fantasies. They can't all be right. Pat made that point yesterday. They can't all be right. I'll get into that point a little bit later, my final talk today, and why, how to give an argument to make that case. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. If it turns out Christianity is true, the other ones are false by definition because they contradict it. We're convinced that Christianity is true for a number of reasons, and therefore, because of that, we act in trust. Actually, I'm doing this a little two-step here because I don't have PowerPoint, so I've got to do the human PowerPoint. But notice, though, what I'm doing. I'm walking. I am engaged. I am involved. I am acting. I am committing myself in light of what I am convinced is true. That is biblical faith. Nowadays, people want to make faith to be into this crazy um, leap. You just have a feeling and you hope you're there. This is what was wrong in that circumstance that Pat talked about yesterday where they had the faith and science kind of conversation and the pastor came up and said, Christianity is just about faith. It isn't about this other stuff. In other words, it's not attached to the real world. That's what he's saying. And if you cannot attach it to the real world, you cannot test it as being sound. Christianity has always been attached to the real world. Jesus of Nazareth was a man with his feet on the ground, dirt under his fingernails. He was one of us. He was a genuine human being. He was a part of history. And the miracles he worked were in history. And if they're just in our imagination, it's just a faith leaf, it does us no good. Because Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 said that if we are believing in a resurrection in Jesus that did not happen, people should pity us. Did you know he said that? We are of most people to be pitied. We should be feel, people should feel sorry for us. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and Paul was one of many witnesses to that. The point I'm making is, is our faith 
is not something floating around in the sky somewhere, a fantasy, wishful thinking, but what biblical faith is, and this is why I don't use the word faith because it's too corrupted as an English word now for people to get it right, I use the word trust because trust is earned. And that's what pisteo, translated faith, means. It means active trust. That's why I'm walking the steps, because I'm acting based on what I have good reason to believe. I am acting based on what I have good reason to believe is true in the capital T sense, in the objective sense, true about the world. And one other thing, by the way, that is true about the world is that there will be a reckoning. And so there's no real place for somebody to fit on, sit on the fence because every single person will stand before a judge. And that judge will be Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the one who said that, among others. He will be the one. All judgment has been given to me by the Father, Jesus said in John chapter 5. And then when you read the end of the story, the great white throne judgment, there it is. And there is Jesus, the final judge, with nail prints in his hands and his feet and a gash in his side. It is the wounded God-man that will be the judge over all. And there will be a consequence for that. And that will be real. Everyone will face that. And so when we communicate our convictions, notice how I didn't say share our faith. I don't like that wording. It's confusing. It plays into their hand. When we communicate our convictions, one thing we want to make sure that they understand is that we're not talking about our fantasy. We are talking about what we think is actually so. And we hopefully have some reasons why they should take that conviction seriously. Now, what I've offered here, I, I hope, has provided a, a kind of conceptual framework to help you understand things a little bit better as a follower of Christ. You take this understanding, and then you take the other things that what we or others are training you to do to answer questions or maneuver in conversation. But now you realize when somebody says, when you say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, they think you're saying, if you don't like Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream, you're going to hell. That's what it sounds like to them. I debated Deepak Chopra for an hour. That's on YouTube, by the way, just FYI, on national TV. And he said, so if people don't believe just like you, then they're going to hell. That's what he said to me. Notice how, how he put it. If they don't like your flavor, then you think they're going to hell. Why should anybody go to hell? Because they don't believe just like you. They don't have your flavor. You see how that played out in that discussion? So this kind of stuff happens all the time. I want to be part long-term in your life to train you to think better about these things and be more capable of facing those kinds of challenges. Okay, I represent an organization called Stand to Reason. And we send out free training material for those who sign up for it every single month. We've got a website, str.org, str.org. We have thousands of pages of information. We've got over a thousand video clips on there. My podcast is on there, and you can sign up for that there. There's lots of stuff at our website, and I hope you just bookmark it right away. We also have apps you can download for your phone to have quick reference stuff. That's all really good. But I want to make sure that we're able to send you things that I write every single month for at no cost is my way of mentoring you. If you tell me where you live, your address and your email address, and I want to know your address, even though we'll send this to you digital, the material, I want to know your home address because then next time in town, we can send you an email and say, we're going to be in town. And you might want to come to the event, but I can't do that if I don't know where you live. 
name, address, and email address, and we will send you free training material every single month. That will be our bi-monthly newsletter called Solid Ground. It's about a 3,000-word article that I write to help you navigate in your culture as an ambassador for Christ. And then in alternating months, I'll give you a one-page, one-page, two-sides mentoring letter where I try to help you be a better ambassador for Christ. Thank you. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, please give him a call. Local number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, yeah.